The political world is becoming increasingly volatile and unpredictable, while at the same time having a profound impact on the lives of citizens across the globe. This is Polis Podcast, and I am Thomas Barton, the founder of Polis Analysis. Every week, I'll be in the virtual armchair with relevant experts from Polis teams to discuss the key developments shaping the political world. All we need is for you to join us on the virtual sofa. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Polis Podcast. I'm joined by Harry. Harry is actually our digital editor. He's the man who edits these podcasts week in and week out. And he's also a UK politics analyst at Polis. So Harry, um, you know, just to kick off, can you uh, tell our listeners a little bit about what the current situation is in relation to UK politics? Because that's what we want to talk about today. What's the state of the uh, you know, main political parties in the UK? Um, you know, we're halfway through uh, the parliamentary cycle, if you know, if uh, analysts are right in saying that the UK general election date may be brought forward. So what, what's the state of play in UK politics? Um, so I think, I think looking at the polls, one feature since Boris Johnson came in as Prime Minister is that the Conservatives have held quite a, a consistent and persistent lead. Um, that lead is obviously ebbs and flows, and there's been times when Labour's very briefly pushed ahead, but uh, the Conservatives have held around a 4 or 5% lead, and that's certainly the case at the moment. Um, the most recent polls have the Conservatives anywhere between 3 and 8%. So the picture we have at the moment is quite a dominant Conservative Party being tailed just behind by Labour, and then the Lib Dems and the Greens still polling quite far off from that. So that's just a brief sort of picture of what it looks like at the moment in the polls. And I think what's worth stressing, especially for our listeners who are less acquainted with UK politics, is that it's very rare for a party in government to be performing better in the polls than the opposition party, particularly when that party in government has been in government for uh, such a long period. I mean, don't forget that the Conservatives have been back, uh, have been in government since 2010. Uh, I mean, admittedly, it was a coalition with the Liberal Democrats under David Cameron for five years. But nevertheless, the Conservatives have been uh, a party of government since 2010, so for 11 years. Is it not odd, Harry, that you know there isn't a sort of voter fatigue with mm-hmm. the Tories? I mean, plus if you add in all the the crises that the government's having to go through. I mean, there's a fuel shortage in the UK, there's a lorry driver shortage, there are all sorts of supply chain crises. Uh, there's going to be all sorts of drama around uh, Northern Ireland, given the current negotiations of the European Union on the Northern Ireland Protocol. And there are, there are a lot of crises and issues um, that this government is having to face, yet they keep polling ahead of uh, the opposition. Why is that? I think it comes down to we have had the Conservatives in power for 11 years, but we've had very different Conservatives over the course of that period. Uh, we've obviously had the start of that period with David Cameron, it's very much an austerity budget. And then we've, we moved to Theresa May, more perhaps more of a transition candidate, someone like Boris Johnson, who's a completely different politician to David Cameron, both in style and also in substance. What the Conservatives are manifesto, what they're pushing at the moment is um, economically on a completely different game to what David Cameron is. So, Perhaps we've had the same party, but we've had very different versions and very different iterations of that Conservative Party. So I think that potentially explains why they've been so politically durable, because they've been able to navigate these very changing times over the last 11 years, and as a party, so quickly adjust to different platforms. Um, That's a good point. I mean, the Conservative Party is the oldest political party in the world, and a lot of commentators and uh, pundits and uh, political analysts argue that the reason why the Conservatives 
perform so well in elections is because they're constantly recreating themselves and adapting to the times uh, to remain popular and relevant. Um, and that's definitely the case. But then what I would put to you, Harry, is actually the Labour Party, the opposition, is in a very different position than what it was a couple of years ago when uh, Jeremy Corbyn was a uh, leader. So the Labour Party has gone through a huge change as well, has it not? Yet, its position has not changed in the polls. It's still training behind the government. So how, does that, how do you square that circle? I think fundamentally, the Conservatives as a party find it much easier to change politically in terms of their positions on things than Labour. And I'll just illustrate that. In 2015, it's election David Cameron versus Ed Miliband. And David Cameron is characterising Ed Miliband as being a socialist. He's going to push the country into like a radical economic policy. Boris Johnson is now basically arguing for the policies that Ed Miliband proposed in 2015. So they could, but the way the Conservatives managing, manage messaging and the way that the party machinery can, so, can switch onto a different platform um, without that, that sectional infighting that I think Labour is quite prone to, I think shows what they can keep party unity while changing so drastically. Whereas I, th- I think with, with Labour, that changing from the Corbyn kind of a, a left-wing politician to Kistama, a sort of centre-left, results in so much more infighting because that, the party machinery can just not move in the same way and the membership can't move in the same way. No, that's, that's a good point. I mean, yeah, I mean, political parties in the UK are on the whole broad churches because of the election system. It means that uh, because of the electoral system, first past the post, it just means that you know, it's primarily a two-party system. So the main two parties will always have lots of different factions within them. But I think you're correct that you know the Labour Party is known for uh, for its infighting between sort of the left wing of the party and the sort of pro-Corbyn faction, if you will, and the uh, centrists who are more pragmatic and want to you know gravitate towards the centre ground because they're more interested in winning power than uh, securing ideological purity. That's definitely the case. Um, but I, one thing I think which is interesting, if we if we stick with the Labour Party for now, Harry, is uh, the Labour Party conference that took place. I mean, I mean, for the benefit of our readers, uh, or our, our listeners rather, um, you know, can you just take them through very quickly, you know, what party conference season actually is, and then what your take is on uh, how Labour's conference went and what it signals for the direction of travel uh, that the Labour Party is heading in? Okay, so conferences are, um, are present across like uh, most democracies, but in the UK specifically, once a year, all major political parties will have one big gathering where members will come to vote on uh, vote on platforms. The leader will do a big speech, which is always like very highly, um, there's very high media coverage on that. Um, and it's basically stating what is the party's story for the upcoming year? Like what message is the party going to be pushing? Um, so in the UK, we've just had both of those. So Labour's just had theirs in Brighton and the Conservatives have just had theirs too. Um, I think if we're going to talk about the Labour Party conference, um, I think there's, there's plenty of interesting things to discuss there. I think firstly, if we talk about what are the big messages they're pushing. So Labour was very, very keen in both the leader's speech and in the shadow chancellor's speech to push this idea that Labour is once again more business friendly. They talk about scrapping business rates. They made a lot of appeals to the idea that Labour can work with business. They're trying to differentiate themselves from accusations against Corbyn that they were sort of a business, a party that was hostile to business. So that was one thing they were pushing. Um, and kind of along those lines, they're trying to push messages that Labour is once again coming back to the centre ground. You can even see that with the use of colours. Like in the background to Starmer's speech, you see like purple shades. They're trying to suggest that Labour is not as um, 
fiercely ideological as perhaps it once was, and it's once again kind of postulating back to how, to how it was in the early 2000s of being this party that operates in that centre ground. So I think that is the overwhelming, in terms of messaging, um, takeaway from Labour conference is that this is a party who's shifting to the centre-left. Uh, but in terms of, there were some really significant structural changes that went across the conference, and these have been much talked about. Um, sure. Keir Starmer has pushed a change in leadership rules that um, would shift the, the power in terms of elections away from the members and towards the um, members of the Labour Party in terms of Parliament. So what that means is in previous, in the, in the last Labour uh, leadership election, only Keir Starmer would have been able eligible to stand. So it's um, the power is shifting away from the members in terms of control of leadership and towards the, the political party. Um, and it's worth, it's worth mentioning to our listeners that the membership of the Labour Party tends to be to the left yeah, that's good. Uh, politically uh, of the Labour Parliamentary Party. Mm. So the consequence of these changes is that a kind of insurgent candidate like Corbyn will, would find it harder to win under these new circumstances than he would have under the previous election rules. So this is quite a significant change. And it, it, is, it marks a, a solidifying of the Starmer wing of the party, the centre-left or the soft-left within the Labour Party. So it's quite a significant change. Sure, but I, I'm wondering why this new approach of you know, gravitating towards the centre-ground is not really working for Labour in the polls. Um, I mean, actually, the only time when the Labour Party got ahead of the Conservatives uh, was when uh, Boris Johnson and the Chancellor Rishi Sunak announced uh, the uh, social care levy, which in a sense was just an additional tax that uh, working uh, Brits uh, will have to to pay. Uh, It was an increase on their national insurance contributions that's only paid by people in full-time work um, so that they could fund an increase in uh, spending on social care and a large part of that money is actually also going to go to the National Health Service. And that was the only point when that tax rise was introduced by uh, the Conservative government, which, by the way, takes the UK tax burden to its highest levels in over 70 years. It was only at that point when in the polls... The Tories were no longer seen as the natural party of business and the Labour Party was able to get ahead. But that, that lead didn't last. So, um, you know, why is it, do you think, Harry, that actually, you know, even though you talk very you know, eloquently on the fact that uh, Keir Starmer is shifting Labour towards the centre, consolidating his power over the party to make sure uh, the left can't take control of the leadership in future, why is it that despite all these moves towards presenting itself as more centrist, more mainstream, um, and, you know, the, more favourable to business, for instance. Why is it that the polls are not, are not changing? Hmm. Um, I think that's, that's the million-dollar question for the Labour Party, and that's what the question they'll be, um, they'll be trying to ask. I, it, to take my sense in it, I think it, it comes down to a lot, the nature of the Conservative Party. And because the Conservative Party is talking about high wages, they're talking about high productivity, they're, um, they're talking about investing in areas and spending money. It's very difficult for Labour to then, a centrist Labour Party to then almost say the same things or potentially slight to the left of those and then characterise the Conservatives not going far enough. Like it's, it's a very difficult story to tell because the Conservatives are very much in Labour turf and they're arguing on Labour 
on traditionally Labour policies. So I think it's that it's that ability to differentiate, which is which Labour are finding hard. Um, and it, I think that's has been exacerbated by the the pandemic. I, I think throughout the whole of last year, the Conservatives and the Prime Minister got so much more airtime. Um, and it was late as Keir Starmer, a new leader, trying to differentiate himself and trying to kind of state his claim. It's been really difficult. Um, and I think obviously with the with the vaccine rollout, I think the, the after effect of that is still being felt where it's perhaps the Conservatives didn't, it isn't considered that they handled the pandemic in 2020 very well, but in 2021, the public perception is that it was handled much better and that the vaccines were rolled out fast. So I think they're competing with all those factors. Um, and I think that's why they're remaining quite stagnant in the polls. And speaking of politicians who are unable to get their story across and unable to rejuvenate their party's chances, it's probably worth talking a little bit about uh, the minor parties in the UK and the smaller parties, such as the Liberal Democrats and the Greens. I mean, what's the situation with them? I mean, the Lib Dems, for instance, you know, they're meant to be a centrist party. They were in government from 2010 to 2015 as the junior coalition partner to the Conservatives. And, you know, uh, in the 2000s, they performed extremely well and they, you know, returned a large number of uh, members of parliament, uh, a large number of uh, uh, their election candidates uh, to Parliament. Um, I mean, the first-past-the-post-electoral system we have in the UK um, restricts smaller parties. It makes it harder for smaller parties to win seats, but they would nevertheless do very well at capturing a large share of the total vote in the country. I mean, you know, in recent years, the Lib Dem sort of vote share has collapsed, and it's just not showing any signs of recovery. I mean, is, do you do you have a, an explanation as to why the Lib Dems are faltering and struggling to get any traction and cut through? I think it comes down again to that question of what is the Lib Dem story. I mean, the Lib Dems have spent the last the last five six years campaigning ferociously against Brexit, and obviously now Brexit's happened, they're not campaigning to rejoin. So, like, where does the Lib Dem stand broadly? Because they made that such a central part of who their identity um, in terms of. On economics, they're, they're centre-left, but then again, so is Labour. So it's difficult to find what the, what the Lib Dems USP is. And I think that's been especially the case on COVID. You've had the Conservatives who've, who've gone into lockdowns, but have broadly been more hesitant about doing that. Labour who've pushed for tougher restrictions. Where do the, in, within that dichotomy, where do the Liberal Democrats? And I think that is... Well, the Liberal, the Liberal Democrats, um, in their defence, I would say that they did put an opposing view uh, to the public when it came to lockdowns and the curbing of uh, freedoms uh, as part of the government's attempt to uh, tackle coronavirus. The Lib Dems are actually often arguing in favour of, uh, of uh, protecting people's freedoms and liberties and, uh, and they were quite, uh, they were quite uh, critical of measures by government to expand its powers and to you know, lock down uh, society. So in that point, you know, on that point, actually they were uh, they were offering a different point of view. And actually, uh, those are the fringes of UK politics. Um, Jeremy Corbyn's brother, Pierce Corbyn, for instance, who is known for uh, being anti-lockdown and is associated with the whole anti-vaxxer movement as well. Uh, people uh, who uh, follow people like his, uh, like Piers uh, Corbyn, uh, I remember reading a report about it in the UK press, some of them actually thought that the Liberal Democrats were the most effective vehicle uh, in terms of political parties to carry forward their views. So I would argue that actually the Dems did take a bit of a contrarian point of view at a time when the 
um, when the overwhelming narrative during COVID was one of, you know, we need lockdowns, we need restrictions, we need to, you know, uh, curb freedoms to, to stop the spread of the virus. But then again, you know, that, that didn't get any traction, did it? It didn't lead to any movement in the polls. So, yeah. Well, then if, if you don't um, see this as a problem in content, you don't see this as a problem with the Lib Dems position, it certainly is a problem in getting that position to the, the mainstream public. I think the pandemic, with its heavy focus on government and what is the government's decision going to be on this issue, what is, how, what is the government's new rules going to be, it really sidelines these minor parties. And I think the, um, the Lib Dems' difficulty they had going into the pan- pandemic have been massively exacerbated. It's so hard to put their if you want to take a, say they have a unique position on COVID, it's incredibly hard to stress that because of this overwhelming focus on the government and then an even slightest focus on what the opposition wants to do in relation to that. Well, look, for, for all the issues that Lib Dems are, are facing, at least they do still have a handful of MPs. But what about the Greens? It's still the same situation, is it not? Caroline Lucas, the MP for Brighton, remains the only member of parliament of the Green Party, despite there being an overwhelming change in public opinion in recent years, where actually more and more British citizens, like the rest of uh, the world, are understanding that climate change is having a real adverse impact, and they understand the need for uh, environmental politics and policies that are uh, effective at decarbonizing economies, um, at protecting the environment and so forth. So the Greens, for the first time in history, are actually, um, their arguments are actually uh, gaining a lot of traction with the public, yet politically, again, their performance in the polls is hardly worth even commenting on. I mean, they're they're not they're not going anywhere. I mean, do you have a an explanation, Harry, as to why the Greens are similarly uh, unable to take off? Because if you look at European counterparts, a lot of our readers at Polis and our listeners um, are in European countries. I mean, if you look at Germany, we had a podcast. Uh, with a young German politician on the outcome of the uh, election. And actually, the Greens didn't do as well as they were once expected to do. But they were expected at one point to be the leading party ahead of Angela Merkel's governing CDU party, right? And then they ended up falling into third place. But they still came third and got over 100 seats in the German parliament. So why is it that the Greens in Germany are a political force? Yeah, then, you know... Not, uh, in the UK, they're, they're unable to really uh, take off in, in the polls. Um, yeah, but perhaps I have a more contrarian opinion on this. I think um, the Lib Dems may have more MPs, and they're certainly like historically a much bigger party. But I think the Greens have a lot more to be excited about in the UK context. The Greens have a lot of factors playing in their favour. Um, so if we look at the uh, election, local election results of this year, um, the Greens made some pretty impressive gains, and they have realistic shots of a handful of um, constituencies. And I think Bristol West comes to mind as a constituency they've been close to winning in the past. Um, the Greens also have the benefit of that. Their sole issue, climate change and the climate crisis is elevating quite quickly in public consciousness and how people ascribe importance to things. Um, I think, so I think that's going to be, that will play into their favour quite significantly. Um, as you said, the European context, Greens are going to be getting much more of a platform in the continent due to these recent successes. And even in Scotland, where the Greens have entered government as a coalition partner, that's going to give them a bigger platform too. So um, perhaps the Greens have got reasons to be, reasons to be hopeful. Um, and particularly if the, as the left of the Labour Party becomes alienated from Keir Starmer's leadership, the potential that they, they move towards the Green Party, which has happened in the United States and has happened in Scotland as well, 
I think it, it is something the Greens will be hopeful for and the Greens will be hoping occurs. So I think maybe the Lib Dems have done better, but perhaps the Greens are in a position to, to do better in the future. That's a good point. And so you're taking a longer term, a longer term view on their, uh, on their performance. I mean, I would argue that uh, one of the reasons why they're probably struggling is actually because uh, the incumbent government uh, has actually you know, taken on quite a green agenda in its policy. I mean, uh, the UK government just this week announced its net zero strategy. It announced its strategy for um, the heating of buildings, uh, the fact that they want to phase out uh, gas boilers and introduce public funding to help people make their tran that transition towards heat pumps, uh, which have a, a lower um, environmental uh, impact. Um, you know, actually, a lot of the policies being introduced by this government, you know, when it comes to rolling out like electric uh, car charging points, for instance, and so forth. I mean, this government has you know introduced policies and funding uh, to decarbonize the UK. Um, I'm not saying they're going nearly as radical as you know the Green Party would want them to go, but this you know the UK government has actually been seen um, as leading the way internationally when it comes to adopting climate-friendly policies. I mean, the UK was the first country in the world to introduce a target to go net zero by 2050. So maybe what's happened is, in classic Boris Johnson's form, he's co-opted the policies and politics of other parties to nullify the threat or potential threat they could pose to him politically. Uh, that, I mean, that's an argument that I, would, uh, that, I, that I would make to explain why the Greens at the moment are probably not uh, performing as well as they could um, in the polls. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a it's a persuasive argument to, argument to make, and I think um, not only the Conservatives making those moves, but Labour is really putting green politics at the heart of its um, of its message. It's uh, the idea of a Green New Deal. That's really central to to Labour's policy platform. So I think the Greens are an issue where they do have to differentiate themselves against major parties who are who are talking their in their language. Uh, but don't I think don't forget that the Green Party is a very very young membership. Um, it's going to be inspired. It's going to be inspired and excited by what's happening in Europe. And I think that energy um, in UK politics can take can take parties far. So I think definitely one to keep an eye on in the in the future, in my opinion. Fair enough. That's that's a good point. I think we'll definitely have to keep track on their performance. But Harry, very quickly to finish off, uh, I think we, you know we've done a good job of. Uh, setting out the state of play in relation to uh, where the uh, main political parties in the UK are, uh, where they're sitting in the polls, what their policy platform is, uh, what we can expect going forward. Um, why, why would you say any of this matters right now? I think to um, apply it to an international audience, one dimension to really talk about in terms of affecting our readership is the impact that UK election results in UK polling has on trade. I mean, yeah. the UK recently announced a trade agreement with New Zealand. Um, it's uh, a trade agreement that sort of has an impact on on the agriculture sector. Quite, uh, it has a substantial impact on it. Um, and you know, the the Conservatives are sort of jumping on this uh, agreement on New Zealand uh, as some sort of uh, you know another great deal that's been signed. Uh, only because the United Kingdom has the independence to strike its own independent uh, trade agreements and have its own uh, trade policy because it's outside the European Union and outside the EU Customs Union. 
Whereas in contrast, the Shadow International Trade Secretary, Emily Formbury, was highly critical of the trade agreement, saying it was adding uh, small amounts of money to the economy, it was going to undermine the position of farmers in the UK, and was adding little value. So actually, you know, whether Labour or the Conservatives occupy government will have a profound impact on the global economy, uh, because that will dictate the sort of approach to international trade uh, that those uh, two respective parties would take. And it's not just trade, it's also development spending. I mean, we've seen the international aid budget uh, considerably cut uh, by this incumbent Conservative government, probably because uh, they know it plays well politically with uh, their red wall seats that they took off the Labour Party in the 2019 election, because in uh, those northern seats, uh, foreign aid spending is, is not popular because a lot of people believe that that money should be spent domestically instead. Whereas the Labour Party were very critical along with some moderate Conservatives of that decision to cut aid. So that has repercussions for you know, developing countries in Africa and Asia, um, you know, when it comes to spending on uh, tackling health outbreaks, uh, alleviating uh, poverty, uh, the, the UK government's composition really does have global uh, repercussions uh, that, that far extends uh, the British Isles. Thank you so much, Harry, for taking our listeners through uh, the current state of play in UK politics. Obviously, we'll have to keep a close eye on how the major political parties uh, continue to perform in the polls, and we'll, we'll keep analysing developments uh, closely. But thanks so much for, for joining me. Thank you very much, Lewis. We hope you enjoyed this Polis podcast episode. At Polis Analysis, we are fully devoted to helping individuals better navigate the political world. So we would love to hear your thoughts and please do share any suggestions you may have for future Polis podcast episodes. Follow the Polis podcast channel on Spotify to access our weekly episodes. And if you want to better navigate the political world with accessible, fact-based and impartial analysis of global politics, then sign up to our free newsletter at www.podisanalysis.com. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Thanks so much for listening.